um, and, and reflect on really the salvation that he had been given. And eventually he made his way, he escaped slavery, he made his way back to his hometown, right, where he basically gave his life in pursuit of knowing God more deeply. Um, in the monasteries where God laid a conviction on his heart to go back to Ireland, right? To go back to the very place where they enslaved him and mistreated him. And he went back there. And not just did he go back there, he took the gospel back there with him. And so he, tra he tra traveled all around Ireland, starting churches, starting monasteries, and proclaiming the good news of the gospel, right? And so he's a, an amazing, an amazing individual who really gave a lot of sort of shape to our modern mission movement, right? A lot of that comes from sort of St. Patrick thinking deeply about his responsibility as a steward of God's grace, okay? So if you don't know much about St. Patrick, I would encourage you to have a free book, okay? I've got three of them. I've got three of them. Um, and and he, I mean, the wonderful thing about St. Patrick is that we have, we have a, lot of, not, a lot of saints who went before him or maybe came since him. We don't have much information about, but St. Patrick left us his confessions. We know a bit from his confessions about his life and his story. And so I would encourage you, I had the privilege of taking a class on church history in the, this past semester, and I, I would encourage you, it, benefit, it benefited me deeply, and I think you would benefit as well. Is that a hand because you want a book? No. Yeah. So that's, there's lots of, obviously, folklore and legend that goes along with a lot of these saints, but this book will help you sift through some of that. So if you want this, I'm going to leave it on the stage, and you can come up. There's three of them. After service, just have it. It's a gift, okay? It's a gift. Um, don't throw any elbows to get to it, okay? I know you got a seat. All right, get ready at the end. Um, another just quick reminder that because of spring break and there's no school this week, all of this stuff can stay set up, okay? So praise the Lord. You don't have to tear anything down. Hallelujah. Whoop, whoop. Raise the roof. Okay, so the Bible. Let's get into the Bible. Okay, Philippians chapter 4. I'm going to read this uh, section for us. Then I will pray and we will dive right in, okay? I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you for sorry with you sorry period okay let's pray father God Lord as we consider your word this morning father I pray that we would um, see it as being your holy your eternal word um, which is true father Lord we pray that you would take these truths 
Lord, and that you would etch them on our hearts as your people, that they would shape, that they would form us, that they would lead us, Lord, that they would encourage us and challenge us this morning, Father, that we would be people who walk according to your word. We love you, and we ask these things in your holy and precious name for amen. Sorry, I keep saying forever. I don't know why I want to say forever. Okay. All right. So real quick, one of the, one of the blessings of being a dad is that being a parent, I think any parent can, can relate to this on some level, or, or any, really anybody who works with children, there are certain lessons that we learn about our Heavenly Father um, from our interactions with children. They teach us a wonderful, wonderful truths about how God loves us and cares for us, right, and views us. Um, over, over winter break, uh, there was a moment where Noel, our youngest, she's a two-year-old, where she was um, afraid she was afraid of something, and I don't remember exactly what it was that she was afraid of, but she was afraid of something. And uh, she, was, she was disturbed, and she was frightened, and I, you know, she began to cry. And I ran over to her, and I, and I picked her up, and I simply said, It's okay, baby. Daddy's here. Daddy's here. And then I said these words. I said, I got you. I got you. Right? Well, a couple days later, I found myself, it was early in the morning and I was in my office which is like under our stairs in this sort of Harry Potter-ish sort of room and I was studying and Noel had woken up, everybody else was asleep, school was out over Christmas break and so the kids had kind of slept in and Noel had woke up and during the habit of break, you know, over those course of days I would wake up early and be down there and so normally when she wakes up in the morning I'm not home, a lot of times I'm at work, right? And so she, um, she got used to waking up and coming downstairs. And so that morning she woke up before everybody else did. And I was downstairs in the office. And she found her way down there. And, and she got in there. And she was in there for about two minutes. And all of a sudden she got startled. There was some noise from maybe the dogs running around above us or something like that that startled her. And she got scared. She got scared. And so in that moment of fear, she ran up into my lap, right, wrapped her arms around me. And her, her head kind of rested on my shoulder. And she simply said these words. You got me, Daddy? You got me? Right? And in a moment of fear, she remembered. She remembered the words that I told her. It's going to be okay because I have got you. Right? And she ran back to those words. She remembered those words. And she... I wish I, could, I wish I could be the solution for her all the time, for all my kids all the time. But in those moments, in those moments, she understood that in my presence, there was a certain degree of peace that she could experience, right? That she could come to me because I would have her, right? We, we learn a very similar lesson from Paul's writing in the Bible about how we relate to God. It's really a beautiful, beautiful lesson. In the beginning of the book of Philippians, Paul reminds the church of Philippi that they are in Christ. They are in Christ. That they are, that Christ is with them. And as a result, he can say confidently to them, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They can be a people who, who experience, who know who live lives marked by peace. Why? Because they have with them the very presence of God. This morning's, 
you know, the big idea in this passage, if you look at each of these sections, you will notice that each of them have something to do with this notion of peace. And really the big idea is this. The proximity of God's presence produces peace among God's people. The proximity of God's presence. The, the, the fact that God is a, a God who throughout history chooses to dwell with his people. Right? You go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You can trace the story of God essentially with the idea of God attempting to make his presence dwell with his people. Whether it's with the Garden of Eden, the tabernacle, the temple, all the way through. Jesus himself, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the Helper. God is determined to make his peace, his presence, dwell with his people. And as a result, we should be a people who experience, who know true peace. It comes from his presence. And Paul shows us that this morning. The first thing that we see in verses 2 and 3 is the priority that because we're a people who, who are a people who should experience and know peace, we have a God of peace, we should have a priority of maintaining our peace. So, so Paul tells us in this first couple of verses about a particular situation where peace seems to be fractured among God's people. As he writes this letter and delivers it to the church of Philippi, he points out a fracturing of peace among God's people. Now before this, Paul speaks specifically of several threats, several things that are happening that threaten the purposes of God and the advancement of his gospel. We saw these in the last couple of weeks. In chapter 3, verse 2, Paul warns them, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And when Pastor Gilmore preached on this passage, he reminded us that, he, that Paul is specifically speaking of the Judaizers, those who were adding to salvation, right? That they were essentially, their essential message was Jesus Christ is not enough. There is something else you need to do, namely circumcision, which is required. And this was an open rejection of the gospel itself, right? Of, of who Jesus was, what he accomplished, and the power of the gospel. You needed more than who Jesus was. And then in verse 18 of chapter 3, he warns them of another threat. Many who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. We saw last week that this wasn't those who were necessarily openly rejecting the gospel. Rather, these were people who were among them, right? If they ever have a worship gathering, these are folks whose heads might be nodding, right? Not like asleep, all right? Not that kind of nodding, but in agreement, whose hands might be waving, right? And with their lips, they might be saying yes and amen, but what their lives were telling was a totally different story, right? These were folks who, 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 who agreed theologically, but morally and ethically chose to live an entirely different life. Their hearts were not transformed by the gospel, right? Their hearts instead were tethered to the things of this earth. And then here... In chapter, two of verse, or chapter 4, verse 2, we see another group. It's like he's getting closer and closer and closer to the very people of God. And the threat here, what's unique about it, is that it's, it's folks who were, who were not outside of the body, right? They, they, didn't, they weren't people who embraced heresy. And these people weren't those who were among them that embraced hypocrisy. Rather, these are people, these are women who Paul tells us worked closely with him. Right? They labored side by side with Paul to advance the gospel. They're not people on the periphery. They are people in the very center of, a, of an incredible movement. Right? And it was this, these people, they were experiencing disunity. 
right? They didn't agree. It wasn't that they disagreed over a theological problem. It wasn't that they were disagreeing over a moral problem. It was that they simply had conflict, right? So there was unity in what they agreed in, but there was conflict between the two of them. This is what we might refer to as beef, all right? They had some personal beef with one another, right? And Paul addresses it. He doesn't neglect it. And, and, and I think part of the reason why Paul addresses it is because he recognizes throughout the letter and points us to the, the beauty and the necessity of unity, right? He, he's calling us a people. He's calling this church his partners in the gospel. It is so critical that these people compete as one people. They are citizens of the same kingdom, Right? And I think it challenges us because if you think of Paul's direction, his concerns and his instructions in this book, it, it reminds us that the church is not a building. And oftentimes we forget that, especially when we're making decisions like should we sell this land? Should we buy this building? Should we tear down this wall? Should we put up this wall? Like there are some decisions that as a church we do have to make. Right? But if we listen to Paul and the effort and the instruction that he gives, he was reminding us that the church is primarily a people. And if you want to give energy and effort towards investing in his church, you primarily want to be giving that energy and effort towards investing and instructing people. Right? And it's part of the reason why you can walk in and there's a hole right back there when you walk in and it's been there for a while. Right? And there's some things, you may have noticed it, right? There are some things around here that aren't always all together. And that's okay. That's okay because we are not primarily a building. There's great value. We don't want to let this place go into disrepair. We want to be good stewards of what God has entrusted to us, right? But Paul's effort here is going into correcting what's broken among God's people. Likewise, that should preoccupy our attention as well. Now, a couple of things just to note about the way he addresses this problem. First is notice his tone, right? He pleads with them. I entreat you twice before each of the women's names. This rep repetition emphasizes the urgent nature, the desperate need for reconciliation. Paul doesn't come down with a heavy hand of authority. He doesn't cite all of his credentials, all of the reasons why these women should listen to him. He lovingly pleads for them. He lovingly pleads that what is broken between them be fixed, be repaired, because it matters. It matters. It's important. This is a plea that is personal and it is passionate by our brother Paul. Secondly, notice the method. Paul's method for reconciliation. His recommendation is that the very person who receives this letter step into this disagreement. Step into what is broken between these two women and help them sort it out. The best course of action, it reminds us, often is for a third party to step in and to mediate between two people, right? It's not saying that conflict isn't going to happen within the church. It will happen. We are sinful people, right? And oftentimes that those conflict can be repaired between two people. But when it can't be, it takes a mature Christian to recognize, okay, we need to bring in a third person to help us figure this thing out. Right? Because this could potentially threaten the advancement of God's kingdom over some superficial issue. Sometimes it's super, superficial, sometimes it's significant. Right? Either way, it's not worth allowing the church to be divided. All right? Thirdly, notice the aim, what Paul is running after. He wants these women, what he wants for these women is unity. He enlists the help of a loyal companion so that the women will agree in the Lord. 
This term is used throughout this book, this little letter, this letter of four chapters is used no less than ten times. Agree in the Lord. It's what Paul wants. He longs for them to agree in the Lord. This is not, to be clear, unity at the expense of truth. Okay? It's not sacrifice truth for the sake of unity. That's not what Paul is saying. In Galatians 1, 8 and 9, Paul encourages that there would be division because there's those who are teaching heresy. And he says, what should happen to them? They should be accursed. All right? So Paul is not saying, let go of truth to pursue unity. He's not saying that at all. Rather, he's asking that they would, that they would agree on things of, they wouldn't disagree on things that are personal or a matter of opinion. That those things wouldn't be the things that would separate them. In chapter 2, verse 2, he says, Complete my joy of being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. This is the type of agreement that Paul is longing for, a unity of direction, a gospel motivation and orientation that unites these people. Why should Paul, I mean, he's finishing up his letter. He has just a few verses left before the letter is over, and he's directing his attention to what seems like just a disagreement between two ladies in the church. Why would he dedicate so much time to instructing them to do this? Well, I'll tell you why. Because the fact that they would allow disagreement to persist in their church, it's an offense to God. It's an offense to God because God, we know, is a God of peace. He's a God of peace. And if he's a God of peace and we're his people, we should be a people of peace as well. So wherever we see peace fractured among us, we should give attention. We should make effort to restoring, to reconciliation. He says in 1 Corinthians, For God is not a God of confusion, but he's a God of peace. In 1 Thessalonians, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. Right? We should give attention to this. These women should give attention to this because God is a God of peace. Okay? So after elevating... The priority of maintaining peace, Paul then moves and points them to the privilege of experiencing God's peace. We see this in verses 4 through 7. The next two sections actually will continue this theme of peace. And they reveal to us a wonderful, wonderful reality. Simply put, this divine peace can be part of our story. This God of peace can be part of our story, our life. This piece is not simply what sh how we should characterize and direct the relationships that we have among one another. This piece should find its way into absolutely every aspect of our life. There's a story told of two men who were commissioned to, to, to paint, these were painters, commissioned to paint their interpretation of peace on two separate canvases. They were given simple directions. They should include the sky and they should include the water, right? So one man took to his canvas, got out his paint and began to, to paint what he thought was the most elaborate depiction of peace. As you can imagine, this, this beautiful painting had wonderful colors in the sky of yellow and of orange. And you could see a, a sun just setting into a, the, distant, the distant sea. Right? The, the waters were calm, and in the middle of the sea was a big rock. And there's no waters crashing on the rock, just calm, calm, calm. You could barely tell where the, the sky and the waters divided. The other man picked up a similar canvas, different set of colors, and began to paint. 
his canvas looked radically different. It had a sky, but it wasn't orange and yellow. Rather, it was gray and it was blue and it had rain that you could see blowing across the canvas. And, and the waters weren't calm and they weren't steady. They weren't peaceful by maybe this other painter's measure. Rather, they were crashing against the rock. They were moving right and left all over the place. It was a chaotic mess. But down in the lower corner of the painting, you saw another couple of rocks. And on those rocks stood a bird, right? And the bird's feathers, you could see, were ruffled. Its wings were moving, but the bird was standing on a rock, unmoved, and had a look, a confusing look of contentment on its face. The bird was standing on the rock. The peace of God, folks, does not equal absence of wind, right? The absence of storms. If that is what you think, is that your interpretation of peace, then when you see the winds coming and you feel the storm is brewing, you will begin to doubt God. You will begin to doubt his goodness. The peace of God looks more like a bird standing on a rock in the midst of a storm, completely unmoved. Why does that look more like peace, you say? Well, I'll tell you why. Because that looks more like life. That looks more like life. And it, it, peace does not, is not determined or shaped by what happens around you if you're a person of God, if you're a follower of Jesus. The circumstances and the events, the storms and the winds around you do not determine whether you have peace or if you don't have peace. What determines your measure of peace is what happens inside of you, right? And the wonderful story of the Bible, the wonderful story of Jesus is that when he went to the cross and gave his life up for us, he promises to dwell in us so that the peace of God becomes our peace. Even in the midst of storms, that we are a people who have a God who promises that as long as we're standing on the rock, there's no wind that can knock us down. There's no wave that can completely emerge us. It will not happen if we have the peace of God. We stand on a rock. God convinces us. Peace looks like when you are convinced, when you are convinced that God will keep you when everything else around you says you can't be kept. That's what peace looks like. Supernatural peace. That's what it looks like. And this is the point that Paul makes. He makes this point by giving them three commands and a wonderful promise. First command, he says, is rejoice. He repeats this twice. Because most of us need to hear this twice, right? Rejoice. Rejoice. No situation you will find yourself in is beyond God's control. You may, that bird may, looking around, think to himself, what do I have to rejoice in, Right? Well, he can rejoice because there's no storm that you're in the middle of that is completely outside of God's control, right? You can rejoice because the rock that you're standing on can't be moved. That's reason to rejoice. As followers of Jesus, we have so much to rejoice in. So much to rejoice in. Rejoice, rejoice. Next command, he says, is let your reasonableness be known to everyone. He commands gentleness. The peace that God offers should direct and determine how we interact with one another. 
So much so that when people look at our lives, they should be able to see there's a person who knows something maybe I don't know, who has something that maybe I don't have. We should be a people, even in our social interactions, that should be known for taking the peace that we have in Christ and infusing it into every relationship that we have. So when we speak with one another, we're reasonable. When we interact with one another, we are gentle. And that everybody would know it and everybody would see it. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. We should be people who practice peace. Last command is do not be anxious about anything. This is a similar wording to what we hear in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. I'm just going to turn there real quick. Jesus issues the exact same command. This is verse 25 of Matthew chapter 6. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. As Jesus addresses this issue of anxiety specifically, he focuses on two realms. One, the areas that are most likely to cause anxiety in us. First is physical, the physical needs, food, clothing, drink, right? The second category that he focuses on is future. What will tomorrow be like? What is going to come my way? I think for many of us, if we think about our temptation towards anxiety, it usually revolves around those two categories, our physical needs and our future needs, right? Statistics show us that anxiety is a massive problem in our country, and it just seems to be growing. 18% of Americans suffer from anxiety or Depression. I was reading a recent interview with somebody who was involved in ministry and who has part of their story is a, a constant wrestle with anxiety and depression. And they were being interviewed by somebody. You know, what is the cause of your anxiety? Where does it come from? And for this particular person, a lot of their causes for their anxiety and their depression actually come from trauma, significant trauma that has shaped as part of their story. Right, produced anxiety and depression. And for some people, that may be their story. There may be other causes for anxiety, right? But when the individual was asked, this individual broke it down into three particular things as she thinks about caring for herself. She says, first of all, we understand that anxiety is, is a mental illness, right? Unfortunately, in the church, there's a, there's a negative stigma that is not good. It's not from Jesus, that there's something wrong with mental illness. You should, you should not talk about that. It's, 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 it's not okay to talk about, right? 
Well, this individual says, well, the first thing I care for myself in light of the depression and the anxiety is, is I recognize that there, is, there are some chemical imbalances at play that are resulting in anxiety and depression for me. So the first thing I have to do is make sure I, I talk to my doctor. And if I'm on medication, do I have the right dosage? Is medication, is it working? Is it effective? Am I disciplined in taking it, right? This individual also recognizes that it's not just a mental issue, but it's also an emotional is- issue. And so this individual has found health and relief as they have thought out therapy and Christian counselors who can help them navigate the terrains of anxiety and depression. But the third thing they mentioned was that it also was, was a, an attack on their spirit. It was a spiritual issue. It is emotional. It's a mental issue. But it's also a spiritual issue. And listen to what they say. Satan wants to destroy us. He will use any and all tactics to see us taken down. This certainly includes the battle of the mind. It's been important for me to continue to press in to God and to walk with him. I have scripture and words of some of my favorite worship songs all around my house. I see them everywhere I go and they remind me of where my real strength lies. When I am weak, I know God is shown to be strong. And if you're here this morning and anxiety and depression are a unique part of your story, Paul gives us a solution to that spiritual, the spiritual issue that oftentimes produces anxiety. And his solution is simply pray. It's pray, right? And, And for many of us, if we're dealing with that, it may also mean pray and go to a doctor. And it may also mean pray, go to a doctor and see a therapist, Right? Pray, Paul says, if you want to attack anxiety spiritually, be on your knees. Why would he encourage them to pray? Why would he encourage them to be on their knees to address anxiety and depression in their life? Well, because we pray to a God who listens. And not just a God who listens, but a God who acts, right? He loves his people. He wants what's best for his people and he responds to our cries for help. Even if your prayer is simply just that, help. God hears you and he can help. He can help. So I would suggest to you if anxiety, if depression, I would, I would suggest if you have not tried praying, start there. That's something every single one of us is capable of doing, right? On any kind of level. Right? There are professional people that we need to reach out to and get help from as well. Absolutely. Okay? And there should not be a negative stigma that is attached by a Christian who says, you know what, I need to see a doctor or I need to see a counselor to help me walk through this. Right? Every single one of us is broken and in need of help. Okay? Paul says, let's start with prayer. Now, just back up real quick. There are maybe two ways we can apply this. One from an, on an individual basis, okay? So if we think about the believer, and anxiety and depression are part of your story, that's a, a wonderful application, right? Start with being on your knees, bring somebody else in, get some help, all right? But if you're an unbeliever, how do you apply this? If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, how can you apply this? Maybe you're watching from the sidelines and for whatever reason, you haven't placed your trust and found your hope in Jesus, Are Paul's words true for you? Say there's a little bit of a caveat. For for some of you, the the answer is you do have something to worry about. If you're here this morning and you don't follow Jesus, you haven't received him as your savior, you do have something to worry about. 
The only one who's able to provide peace for you is, and I say this in the most loving way possible, when Paul talks, he talks about this with tears. The one who's able to provide peace for you is currently at odds with you. And the application to this is to turn and place your hope and your trust in Jesus, right? The one who loves you, who's there standing with you with his arms open wide for you, run to him, repent, turn from your sins and find your identity in Christ. Individually, that's how we can apply it. As a church, how we can apply it. If we think about specifically what God has called us to, Parkview East, in this season, we aim to accomplish much for Jesus. We aim to be a church where lives are transformed, right? Where we are in each other's lives and the, the spirit of Christ dwells in us and is transforming our lives. And the idea is that we become mature, healthy followers of Jesus. And if we think about what we aim to accomplish as a church, we aim to accomplish much individually in each other's lives. We also aim to accomplish much where our city is concerned. We want to be an outpost of the gospel. We want to be citizens of God's kingdom as we navigate Iowa City or Kelowna or Corville or North Liberty, wherever you call home. As we walk in our, live in our neighborhood, work, go to work in the workplace, as we are a student in the school, that, that, we do, that we navigate these spaces as citizens of God's kingdom. We want to be an outpost of his kingdom here on earth. We want to see this city transformed for the glory of God. We aim to accomplish much as a city. And not just as a city, but as a world. We, send to we aim to deploy folks across the nations. To make disciples of every country. To proclaiming God's goodness, his faithfulness. To taking his peace to be people of peace. In a world that is oftentimes dark, confusing, and chaotic. We aim to accomplish much as a church. Everything we aim to accomplish as a church is impossible without God's special and supernatural action. So for us, an application is we must be, if we want have any hope of seeing what God has, has promised to do through us, if we want to see that happen, we have to be a people of prayer. If we want to see this vision that we have for our lives, for our church, our city, and the world, if we want to see it accomplished, we must be a people of prayer. And that's one of the reasons why we stuck at the last Sunday of every month, a time for us to pray corporately before the service. I would encourage you to attend, right? To come, 9 o'clock, March 31st. Chapel, we will be praying. I would encourage you to attend, right? We want to see a culture of prayer created in this, in this place with these people. God has designed and ordained and planned and promised that he will act for us when we pray. He's promised to do this for us, promised to do for us things that we cannot do for ourselves when we pray. Our vision is big, our God is big, so our prayer must also be big. Finally, in verses 8 and 9, we see the practice, the charge to practice the presence of God's peace. There are no this life that Jesus has called us to, the path that we walk, there are no shortcuts. When I was in college, one of the more formative books that I read was called Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. Now, when I picked up the book, Hudson Taylor, it's a, you know, a missionary who was pioneered sort of the mission field in China. And uh, when I picked up his book, I, I heard just wonderful stories about the book and about the man, the missionary. 
And as I read it in my mind, what I was constantly thinking as I was reading it was, what is the secret? Hudson Taylor's spiritual secret. And I kept waiting for the secret to emerge. Like, where is the secret? I want to know the secret, right? I want to live a life that's faithful to Jesus. Tell me what the secret sort of way is to do that. There's a shortcut. There's got to be an easier path to take. Let me know the secret. The secret was, there's no secret. There's no secret, right? Hudson Taylor was a man whose life was marked by what some might call radical, I would just call biblical obedience and complete dependency on God. There was no shortcut, right? We see this in verse 8 and 9. What Paul is calling us to, the lifestyle of a Christian is a lifestyle that thinks deeply about the things of God, thinks deeply about the world that he made, thinks deeply about how I am designed, thinks deeply about how I interact with you and you and you, thinks deeply about what happens in the world around us. Part of being a Christian, unfortunately in the last hundred years, Christians have gotten a bad rap, right? And they think that in order to be a Christian, you have to stop thinking, right? Well, it could not, that could not be further from the truth, right? We are a thinking people. We're a thinking people. He lists off six different virtues and his charge is to think about these things. His list bears a striking resemblance to the list of virtues that would have been found throughout Greek literature. One scholar notes, it's almost as if he had taken a current list from a textbook of ethical instructions and made it his own. Paul's list parallels Plato's Republic, Aristotle's the uh, Nicomachean Ethics, as they lay out virtues, what is, all trying to get to the understanding of what is the good life. What is the virtuous life? He's taking over terms that are common language in popular moral philosophy. And his challenge is to think about these things. It indicates his desire for the church to appreciate all that is good in the surrounding culture. Yes, there is opposition from the world around us. This doesn't naturally lead, however, to the total judgment and complete rejection of everything in the world. Right? Carl Barth put it like this, the world knows very well what is good. Christians are to know it too. No less well than the world, but better. That is assuredly the apostles' view. There is good stuff in the world. God made it, right? We need to think about it, be drawn to the things that are good, that are virtuous, when I was preparing this message, I was listening to, normally listen to classical music, but I was listening to Itzhak Perlman. And if you know Itzhak Perlman, he's one of the, the world's greatest living violinists. Phenomenal violinist. He's from Israel. He was born, well, I think he developed polio later in his life, like when he was maybe eight or nine or something like that. And so as a result, his upper body is very strong because he walks with braces on his legs and crutches, right? And so his hands are just really thick and big, but I was listening recently to an interview where they were talking about him and it's just commonly known that this man is known maybe not so much some might be known for their technique he is known for his sound and we will talk about Itzhak Perlman they talk about the sound that comes out of his violin right and everybody agrees it is a good sound it's a good sound and it got me thinking 
Okay, is, is our understanding of goodness where the violin is concerned, is it to what degree subjective, right? Everybody agrees. I mean, this man is a world-known violinist. Everybody agrees that the sound that comes out of the violin when he plays it, it is good. It is good. Folks, there are, obje- there are things in this world, Paul tells us, that are objectively true. They are objectively good. They are objectively lovely. And we as Christians are called to find them and to think deeply about them. Because there's plenty of stuff we can think about that's absolute trash. Paul says when you become a follower of Jesus, you will be a thinking person. When we see events that happen in the world around us, we shouldn't just let them come across our timeline and move on. We should think deeply about them. Why did this happen? How should I respond? We should think about the world around us. The Christian life is a thinking life. As followers of Jesus, folks, we are a thinking people. We are to be informed, reflective thinkers. Developing a Christian mind comes from the discipline of thinking about the things in this life. The things that are praiseworthy. The things that are excellent. But remember, there's no shortcuts, right? Paul does not just invite you to sit in a chair and to philosophize about the things that are happening around the world, right? He is not calling you to a seat of theological reflection. He is, but it's also a, it's also a path of theological action, Right? That as we think, as we are informed, and as we reflect, he says, practice these things. All the things that you have seen from me, that you have heard from me, that you have received from me, that you have learned. The things that I have taught you. Move beyond contemplation into action. We should be transformed by the way that we think. And then Paul says, he leaves us this wonderful promise. When you do that... He says, the God of peace will be with you. What a promise. If you think back to those two canvases, right? Like, and to some degree, there's lots of stuff we have no control over, okay? But we can see oftentimes the storm coming, right? And, and we can think and we can act. Do we move into the storm or do we move away from the storm? Do we secure ourselves from what's happening around us? Do we protect ourselves? What kind of protections do we set in place, right? We think and we act Paul says, when you do this, the peace of God will be with you. This morning, folks, we should be encouraged. We are not called to walk this path alone. We are not called to stand on that rock alone. Okay? You know, the the interesting thing, go back to that story with Noel and my office. The interesting thing about what kids think about their parents is as they get older... This is at least the path I've seen with my parents, my kids, and this may be because my kids are incredibly astute or because I'm a total failure. I don't know which one it is. But as they get older, as they know me more, they begin to realize just how fallible I am, right? They see me painting from a ledge like this, like 20 feet up in the air, and I can just see it in their eyes. They're like, what? He's ridiculous. I trust this guy. Like, he's driving me around the country. What's happening right now, right? The more they know us the more like just human we become to them, right? Well, it's actually the opposite with God. Thank the Lord it's opposite. The the more we know God, the, the, the deeper 
more real he becomes to us, we should have the opposite reaction. We should trust him all the more, right? When we see that there's storms that have come into our lives and yet we stand on the rock, like why would I want to get off it, you know? Folks, as we are his people, he promises us, as we are sitting in his presence, we will experience his peace. He doesn't invite us just to experience it, but also to practice it. That's what he's called us to as his followers, as his people. Do you know his peace this morning? I don't know what's going on in your life this morning, but the wonderful news is that God has opened up wide, right? Open up wide his arms. And anybody who runs to him, he promises that they will experience, they will know a peace that this world can't offer. It's also a peace that this world can't take from you. And praise God from it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning that you are a God of peace. Lord, we pray that, just confess that there are often times when we don't yearn for your presence in our life. Lord, there are times when what um, happens to us or around us, Lord, just confess that oftentimes it threatens our peace. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a people who crave for your presence, Lord. And we ask that you will not hold back. Help us to know you. Help us to trust you, Father. Lord, and I pray that you'd help us to love you. We ask these things in your name. Amen.